The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents No Neutrality, where we have a roundtable of contributors pushing the antithesis in every area of life. From family to government, apologetics to homeschooling, being a wife and a mother, a husband, a father, single, widow, business owner or employee, you will hear commentary, essays, lectures, blogs and battle plans on how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life. So now, what we're going to have going on this minute right here, my man Joseph Foreman is going to bring you some fire on the essence of the true church. What is... The true church, if it's not what's going on out there right now, if, if what church is, if what the American church experience is, is not genuine church, what is true church? And Joseph Foreman has a volume that's going to be coming out, a book uh, called the uh, uh, the book of Ch- the Upper Room Book of Church Order. He's been doing a ton of it already on the No Neutrality podcast on ReconstructionistRadio.com. And you can also check it out, Facebook Live. Some of it is on his, it's kind of all over the place. Some of it is on his personal Facebook page. Some of it uh, is on the No Neutrality uh, live feed. But you can definitely get it in your podcast catcher. And also, right here, right now, the C.S. Lewis of Christian Reconstructionism, that is my man, Joseph Foreman. Come bless the mic. He's like C.S. Lewis, except without all that stupid theology. <laughs> Here's a question. Has everybody heard of Wycliffe, the Bible translator? Yep. Okay. Wycliffe emerges into a world that has no printing press. It, he's a scholar, smartest scholar in England, and he's looking at two totalitarian regimes. One of them is the state. The other is the church. He's against both of them, maybe. We're not sure about the state. But he doesn't try to take both of them off. He becomes a, he's a statist. And he goes to John of Galt, which those of you who like Ayn Rand will love his name. He goes to John of Galt, the most powerful kingmaker in England, and he seeks asylum with him and writes stuff that's totally statist. He then turns around and attacks the church, calling for the complete beggary of the church. He wants to just break it down to nothingness. To, actually, I shouldn't say to nothingness. He wants to break it down to be servants of Jesus Christ. That's where he's going with it. Now, here he is. Mind you, there's no printing press. He's coming to the end of his... He's coming to the end of his life. He has ten more years to go in his life. I mean, he doesn't know when he's going to die. And he's looking back on all his work. And he realizes... It, I've accomplished nothing. I've written a bunch of stuff. There's only about one or two percent of the population can read it. And maybe only 10 or 100 people did read it. It's all in manuscript form. We can put the game down. And so what he does is he says, this is what we've got to do. We have to translate the Bible into the language of the common man. Now let me tell you how stupid that is, okay? First of all, nobody in England who's educated spoke the language of the serfs. That was common base English. 
they all spoke kind of a pidgin French English. These guys, he wants to translate the Bible into a language that nobody reads or wants to read, and nobody who speaks that language could read. And he says, I got this idea, we're going to translate it. And everybody who knows him, I know, is, is, is doing exactly what they say to you all today. Who cares, Bo? Really, who cares? Yeah, what on earth is your problem, Joel? You had a perfectly good position there. Why did you just piss it all and throw it all away? What's your problem? Here he is. He wants to translate the he says, okay, I know I'm the best scholar in England. I'm gonna translate the Bible into the language of the common people. They say, why? He says, because with the word of God and the Holy Spirit and the heart of the average plowboy, we will finally be able to have government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Those are his words. Now, if you stop and think about it, you think, oh, surely he must have been talking about representative government. He wasn't. He said government of the people, by the people, for the people. No, representative government does that better than, than totalitarianism. I'll grant you that. But that's not the fulfillment of his words. He had this vision that the word of God could literally transform. By the way, serfs had about a 39-year lifespan. They were coarse. They were base. Uh, marriages between them was were nothing. You know, you heard the tradition of jumping over a broom. They did something to show that they're married. Okay, but no big deal. You just move in. It's like these were not, you can't. These people need a firm hand to rule them. You could never have this idealistic government of, of people involved in it. He said, forget it. So he spent the last 10 years translating it. 400 years of Reformation later, they literally created a population of people who became the basis of literally a new world order. Now don't read all the modern stuff of new world order. They became the basis of, of a world order that nobody conceived of even being possible. <clears throat> He created through the scriptures and the Holy Spirit the idea that you are able to be somebody who can govern your life. So, emerging onto the scene about two years ago, Bojadar is writing this airy-fairy stuff about how the church sucks and all that sort of thing and, and just taking everybody on and... and uh, uh, I, I, I say, Bozier, it's a good book. I like it, I said, but, but here's the problem with it. You can have come up with any theory you want, but why don't you just write a book of church order, a book of, thank you, a book of church order that actually tells us how we should organize ourselves. He says, oh, that's not my problem. That's your problem. You do it. I said, okay, because this has been, that bugged me about Gary North, all the stuff he says against the Constitution. Fine, Gary, write a Constitution. You know, Show us how we ought to run our government. No, I'd rather just criticize the one we've got. And so Bo says, no, that's your job. Do it. And I said, I don't know how to do it. And he, he said, well, start here. Find a verse in the Bible where the elders can be involved in discipline. I couldn't find the verse. I honestly couldn't find the verse. And that, that started me going on the question of, in that case, what is the job of the elder? What is the book of church order? What I came up with it was a shock. Almost everybody will tell you that the alternative is between top-down, what Gary North called power religion, which requires a bottom-up slave religion to serve the power religionists, and so you have a perpetual codependent situation, and if you don't like it, the only possible alternative is anarchy. 
Not anarchy in the sense we argue over, but anarchy in the sense of antinomian anarchy. Just everybody doing whatever they think is right. And so my question was, well, wait a second. Is there an alternative? Did, did Jesus really mean what he said? So I, I started out with the Presbyterian Book of Church Order and went from, from the first chapter on the majesty of Christ. And then I thought, wait a second. The second chapter was, was uh, okay, so what is an authority structure? Who's in charge? And then I realized that's not a legitimate question. I'm not going to get lost in the weeds here because I was in the middle of writing all this technical stuff. This is the new book of church order. I'm a Presbyterian writing to Presbyterians. They're going to get it. I'm going to change the world. And suddenly my barista walked in. She's a cute blonde. She's 30 years old. She has four children. Her husband was abusive. She had just moved to the area. She had grown up with uh, with being best friends of Demi Moore and Bruce, uh, Bruce, what's his name? Bruce, Bruce Willis's kids in Sun Valley, you know. And the reason why that she liked me is when she told me that, I said, oh, I bet you don't know anything about Bruce and Demi, do you? And she said, well, I know that her name's pronounced Demi, but you're right, everybody's always asked me what they're like. I don't have a clue. I said, that's right, because when you're a little kid in somebody's house, you have no idea what the parents are all about. You're just playing with their kids. And she was like, Wow, I never ran into somebody who understood the parents are irrelevant. Um, that was her response, not mine. I said, so she comes, I've been typing all day in my little coffee shop office, and she comes to the door, and she says, what are you typing, Mr. Foreman? Which makes me feel incredibly old, because I think of myself as being her age. And she says, what are you typing? And so I said, well, it's a book on, on the church. What do you mean the church? And I said, well, and I suddenly realized I was writing to people who would never pay a bit of attention, who would never ask me the question, what are you writing, Mr. Foreman? They would never ask me that question. They wouldn't care. In fact, if they read my book, they would go, this guy's crazy, he's an anarchist, okay? And I realized this woman was standing in the door, she was a Christian, she was a total new age, excuse me, not new age, millennial, millennial Christian, I mean, just everything about her is totally millennial. And she says, what are you writing? And I'm sitting here trying to figure out how to explain the technical, all the technical stuff. And I suddenly stopped and I said, I'm writing a book about how the Church of Jesus Christ worshiped in the beginning for the first generation. When they got together over food, they ate, and on the course of eating, they didn't plan it this way, this wasn't their liturgy, that's just, they got together at dinner time or at breakfast time. They got together, they ate, they broke bread together, and then they, they did all this. They argued with each other. They, they prayed with each other. They had healing with each other. They criticized each other. They split with each other. They divided from each other. They had arguments that, that sometimes led to a parting of the ways. In the course of it, they would say things like, this is my body that is broken for you, and they would have what we think of as the Lord's Supper. They did all these things together, and they did it over a two or three hour period of eating together. And I'm just, just talking and trying to think of something to say because I knew I, I had broken my basic rule is you never talk to people in terms of technical jargon. You don't mention the words like epistemological presuppositions to them because it's like the minute you say that, they're gone. And so I was trying to explain it to her. She goes like this. I'm, I'm sitting at my computer turning, looking at her. She's at the door right here and she goes, where is this church? Where is it? And I'm thinking, lady, back off, okay? I'm over here. No, she says, no, you've got to tell me where it is. I said, well, it isn't. It doesn't exist. She said, what do you mean it doesn't exist? 
And I'm like, like, why do you care? What I, I've never seen her blow up like this. And she said, I have been looking and praying for a church like this my whole life. Now she's a Christian that you, us good theonomists would write off because she's shallow. She's all those things about millennials and all that. And yet here she had held together her family, finding whatever churches she could go to, not knowing the first thing about it, but like being the mom, she didn't kill her kids, not because she's pro-life, but because she wouldn't kill her kids. No, she doesn't have all that stuff which we have. She just didn't want to kill her kids. And so she, she had all these kids. And here she is. She's desperate for a church that would meet her needs. And by that, I mean desperate for a church that she could be a part of, that she wouldn't be ashamed to bring her friends to, that she had these four or five gay friends, and she said, you're the first person I've ever thought of who's a Christian that I could introduce to them. And I looked at their pictures, and I thought, <laughs> I'm not sure what I would have to say. But anyway, you know, it, it's like she had never, it's like this is a church I can bring people to. Where is it? This is the kind of Christianity I want to show my kids. Where is it? We eat together. We talk together. We minister to each other. We're, we're, we're there. We're real. It's a place where if people come early, they can get drunk. Not that that's a good thing to do, but it's like, it's a very real world issue. It's, it's like reality. It's not a place where we go with our nice little white gloves on and our little cucumber sandwiches and our fingers pointing out straight. So we have to do, it's a real place. And that's what she wanted. She was desperately hungry for it. And that's the way the early church did it. And so I kept on writing and I realized I had to shift to who I was writing to. Last night, where is he? Jason, that's his name. I'm very bad with names. Jason, who's the host of all, all this, said, tell to, to me and Bo, what do we need to do next? And I mean, I, this is something all of us have been consumed with. Am I correct? This is the big question. Okay, we're here. We believe all this. We're Gen 3 or whatever. You know, what do we do next? How do we do it? Where do we go from here? And, and, and that's been the question that has consumed me. I'm not sure, but I do know this. The fellowship of the saints. If you look at Ephesians 3, you'll see that people like me have spent all my time focusing on how are you able to not be blown around by every wind of doctrine? How can you be somebody who is uh, so in love with Jesus Christ that you can stand firm? How can we have elders who don't waste their time with discipline but spend their entire time getting to know each person in their congregation personally and discipling them so within two, three, four, five, six years you have a mature person? And I kept thinking, not blown around by every wind of doctrine until I realized that's only one of the issues in Ephesians uh, 4. It's Christians who love each other so much that they don't allow themselves to get angry at each other and to fight with each other, but rather when issues come up, they do whatever it takes to resolve them. And if they can't resolve them, now here is, to, to my mind, one of the most important things. If we can't resolve issues, we don't have a little board meeting of a bunch of leaders who have the power. We talk until we've defined exactly where, we're not mad, I'm not mad at Joe, we just disagree about something important, okay? And when we finally iron out and we realize we can't work together, 
the congregation, which has been growing anyway, because it's a place where you're not ashamed to bring your friends, where you're not always talking about it anyway. It's not filled with a bunch of men who think they're ministering to you by staying in your house till four o'clock in the morning to, to, to discuss how big the strap is on your dress. Amen. You know, it's, it's, it's a real church. It's a place where you can bring people and the, the secrets of their hearts are laid bare in a way that they say that God is among you. Okay, that kind of place is going to be constantly growing and dividing anyway. Sometimes we're going to divide because Joe and I can't agree. Okay, it's okay. The people agree with him, go and form their congregation, we form ours. And you know what? In 300 years, the Word of God and the Holy Spirit is going to sort out the differences. I might be, my belief system might be gone, his belief system might be gone, or God might say, you know what, there's, there's, there's more here, both are important, I'm going to take care of you, don't worry about it. Because the church is not here today because the, because the popes and the priests ran the bad guys off. In fact, if you want to look at where 98% of all heresy comes from, it came from the popes and the priests and the schools of education and certification for the, for, for the teachers and the doctors of the church. That's where the heresy comes from. That's where it's maintained. And why we maintain a system, this is like the mafia. It's a nice business you got here. I think you need me to protect you. And so the elders just move in. What would happen if the only way an elder could get you to follow them, or you could get anybody to follow them, was you believed in the word of their testimony, the blood of the Lamb, and that they did not love their, their life unto death? What if that was the power of the church? Now realize the issue is not power versus no power. The issue is real power versus, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, phony power, fake power, the appearance of power, um, Satan's power. So who are the people you're going to reach with this message? Do you realize this is the way millennials look at authority structure anyway? Part of what we laugh and mock at about millennials is they don't have a power religion approach. And they're thinking. They, they're actually, it's like these are people who, who, having been around in the 60s, these are people who are asking important questions. Start talking to people. Now, at this point, drop the word millennial. Talk to people. Wherever you go, what do you do? Well, you know, you can say, well, what I do is I start churches. You do? Yeah. I start, yeah. My name's Kate. What's your last name? Robinson? My name's Kate Robinson. I start churches. You do? You're a church planner? Yeah. Well, what churches have you started? Well, I know you want to start one. And, and, and everywhere you go, you're looking for people. Wherever you are, if uh, and, and, and you're saying, well, how do you start a church? And you get together and you eat. And then you talk about stuff from the Bible that's important. And in the course of it, you'll pray together. And you worship. And you talk about issues in life. And you share problems. And you meet needs. And you do it around dinner. Well, wait a second. How big could this church be? Well, about the size of the room you're in. And then what happens? Well, it packs out the room. And you divide it. And then you find another room for half of it. And you stay in half of it. And you keep on going. You keep on growing. Well, could we use our church buildings? Yeah. You could have a church meeting on Friday night, on Saturday morning, Saturday noon, Saturday night. All these are different congregations. And you could take your average church and have three, six, seven, eight, eight different congregations meeting in that same facility. And the cool thing about it is some of them could even be Hebrew roots people. They'd be the ones who meet on Friday night. Uh, it, it's, it's like... What you can do with the vision of, who was it? He said, oh gosh, it was Joel. What did Joel, what did Joel say about 
It's not where the church is and who's who's the church. What was that? It was a great catchy place. Oh, Asgard is not a place; it's a people. Yeah, Asgard. The, the Church of Jesus Christ is not a place; it's a people. What does that really mean? It means the Holy Spirit in your heart has made you the kind of person who has the maturity. If you want to compare it to marriage, you don't let teenagers get married because they're not mature enough to, to, to handle the weight of marriage. They have to grow up a little. Even then, they might not be mature. The problem with Christians today is they're not mature enough to handle this because they cannot love the body of Christ. They cannot discern the body in their discussion sufficiently to realize it's okay if you divide. It's okay if the church says, you know, sleeping with your father's mother, uh, wife is not acceptable. Why don't you just go start the church of people who sleep with their father's mother over there? Okay? Think of church discipline like that, not as we the elders have decided you get a scarlet A, but rather it's, you know, you're going to do this behavior, you're not repenting, we get it, so you go there, or it could be a doctrinal issue, and what you do is you grow through division, and, and you let the Holy Spirit weed the church out. Here is the power of the early church that was sacrificed. If you can imagine a council of Satan in which he pulls all the demons together, and he says, he says, we've got a major problem here. And Beelzebub says, I'll say we do. He said, back in the day, you remember when, when Gideon came in and he took out a Baal statue? No problem. We waited about 10 years. Then we took Gideon out because he had all these followers. And then he sinned. We could get him to fall and all the people fell with him. We can't do that now. Do you realize that there is no central temple that we can corrupt? And, and Azazel said, that's right. Back in the day, we could fill the temple up with false idols and all of Israel falls. He says, we can't do that anymore because the Holy Spirit is living in each one of the people here. He's living in her just as much as he's living in him, as much as he's living in her. Living that little kid right there, whatever her name is, who's playing with the game. Living the Holy Spirit, it's like the, whole, the, whole, the temple of the Holy Spirit is everywhere. He's got us. And, and, and so, yeah, we lead her into sin and everybody's like, oh, that's, let us minister to you. But nobody goes, oh, well, we got to follow her. But you make her the queen goddess of the church. Then you just call the guy in charge and get her to fall. And what's the first thing they say? The, the, this is true. What's the first thing they say to the women who say, you know what? The head of this church has been abusing me, having sex with me. Sex. What's the first thing they say? They say, what did you do? They say, no, you can't bring this great ministry down. No, he's, has, he, what he's doing is too important. You can't. Now, how do you get to there when everybody in the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit, is the Holy of Holies, is the central place, that if you can get the central place to fall, you can corrupt all of it. How do you get that church to fall? And so the demons were there saying, it just doesn't work. Because we get so-and-so, you know, about the time we're, we're tying everybody down here and stoning Stephen, there's Philip out in the desert leading the guy to Christ who's going to go convert Ethiopia. We can't win. We've got to figure out a way. What are we going to do? And Lucifer says, I'll tell you what we do. We centralize their government. We let their holy people be in charge. We, we, we encourage the holiness of Joe. Oh, holy Joe over here. And, and like we don't try to make him fall because we want him to be an example to everybody so they will put their faith in him. And once we have two or three generations of holy Joes running the place, we will then have gotten rid of the temple of the Holy Spirit in each person. Now, I'm not there saying the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell in you. 
But now what you have is a situation where a person can't, where now making one person fall can bring down a whole section of the church. And all of a sudden the demons have something they can manage. For the life of me, I don't get why we have, as a structure of our churches, a celebrity-oriented ministry in which you put one guy on a pedestal, you shut down literally half the church by telling the women to be silent. So we, I mean, the singing of the demons, this is perfect. We just shut up half the church. They have nothing to say. We've just taken, you know, imagine if you're fighting a war and you can take half of the enemy off the board. Well, that's what, it, that's what Satan succeeded in doing. He took half the enemy off the board. Now he just has to deal with the men. How do we deal with the men? <laughs> Let them think they're in charge of the women. Okay, well, there goes the other half. <laughs> they can spend half of their, day, they spend half their time in fruitless blame. You get where I'm going with this. The point is not that we're egalitarian. The point is you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You have the Spirit of God in you. And it's, when you say, well, you're putting women in charge of men. No, I'm not. I'm not putting anybody in charge of anybody. I'm saying, you want to follow Joe? It's because he has something worth saying, something worth doing. Before God, you look at the scriptures, when he stops having something worth saying, something worth doing, you say, Joe, sorry, brother, let's talk about that. And we sort it out. We see where it's going to go. So um, what I tried to do is, is put this down in print. But here's the problem. I came up with a book of church order, the upper room book of church order. One of the reasons it is called the upper room is I noticed that Jesus did not care if nobody listened to him. Well, that, that's outrageous. He's God. That's right. He's God. And he didn't care if nobody listened to him. In fact, three of the most important chapters in scripture, nobody listened to but John. Has that ever occurred to you? Nobody paid attention but John. The guy lying down on the floor and Jesus is on the floor and he has his head on Jesus' chest. That's the demeanor of the upper room. Clearly, the regular principle of worship was not big on Jesus' mind at that point. He did not think a liturgy was important. What he did think was important is having everybody tuned in to what God through the Holy Spirit felt like they ought to have. So if you have two people talking, if you have two people walking off, it's okay. God knows that they need to talk together. God knows that kid needed to cry right there. It's okay to have the kid cry. It's a good thing. The curse in scripture is when you no longer have kids crying. Because there are no longer kids anywhere. So with, with this picture, here's the thing that was missing. What was missing was it was still a book of church order. And you won't find anything even close to a book of church order, even kind of that, in scripture. And it's at that point that I'm now working on a different project. Appreciate your prayers. I realized in my prison Bible studies over about a two or three year period, I discussed all the issues of church government in the form of individual self-government. And I realized in my conversations with inmates, I literally covered everything that's in the book of church order. And what I'm going through now is translating the entire document into just a dialogue of, of inmates in jail discussing how they can start a church in jail and whether or not it's possible and can it be real, can they do it? Because there's this huge rotating population. And the whole idea is if the church is who you are and who Jesus Christ is you, Christ in you, the hope of glory, it's not where you are, but the sanctuary is right here. Literally every time you talk to somebody, the, the sanctuary of God, the holy of holies, is standing right in front of that person. And everywhere you go, you are taking the, whole, the, the thing that nobody could get to. 
And there it is in your life laid open. The, the, the curtain is torn because you are opening up your life to everybody you go to. That's the picture of the Church of Jesus Christ. Can that be done in a jail where God transforms the life of inmates? And by the way, if you're optimistic or have rosy pictures about inmates, it's like having rosy pictures about serfs. Okay? They're not, they're not the rosiest pictures on earth. But these are people that I saw the power of the Holy Spirit. It never occurred to me they could be a church. But I realized in the things I was discussing in their life, that is what a church is. Let me just encourage you to do one thing before I go. Go to the book of Timothy, First and Second Timothy and Titus. Read through quickly. It'll take you about 15 minutes. It's a short book. And just jot down real quickly, just jot down the problems Timothy would face. Jot them down. Then read through it again and jot down the answers to what Timothy faced, the solutions. Then when you're done with that process, ask yourself this. First of all, this is supposed to be what an elder is like. These are the problems you'll face as an elder. These are the solutions you'll face as elder. First of all, see if you can find anywhere in there. Let's convene a council of elders and hold a court and a trial and resolve these issues. Or do you find everything is dealt with by the character of the elder? Okay, you have a problem with people despising your youth? You don't say, don't you despise my youth? Of course you can. You're the youngster. I'm the old servant. You know, it's like... You don't do that. What you do is by your character, by your doctrine, by your teaching, by your sobriety, they are caused to respect who you are. And every problem is dealt with that way. Now ask yourself this question. Is there any characteristic of an elder, any characteristic of an elder all the way through these verses, that isn't also to be a characteristic of, of you or you or you, all you non-elders in the group? Aren't these just Christian virtues, the fruit of the Spirit? The, 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 what it means to be a Christian. In other words, an elder is not a super Christian. It's not somebody who has the power to control people. The elder is somebody who, through his exemplary example, is summarized by the words of Peter, 1 Peter 5.3, who takes the very word Jesus used. He says, don't, as an overseer, as a shepherd, those words which prove that I can tell you how to live and how to dress, okay? That's what overseer, we, we all know that's what overseer Peter says, no, 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 an overseer and a shepherd is not somebody who exercises authority using the same word Jesus used when he said, don't exercise pagan Gentile authority. What you do as a shepherd is, rather you are an example to the sheep. He defines a shepherd, he defines an overseer, he defines an elder as somebody who sets the example that somebody says, I like the way that kid acts. I want to be like him. Okay? You say next to him, but he's a kid. How do you be like him? And the answer is, my answer is, look at the way he lives. Look at how he talks. Look at his demeanor. And all of a sudden, what you have is normal Christian character. Lived, what's the authority that he's got? He's got the authority of the Word of God. He's got the power of the Holy Spirit. So that the Holy Spirit is speaking through his words, and you say, wow, those are words. I'm listening to them. And that's how the true authority of the church is manifested. That's how it's released. That's the authority Jesus wanted us to have. And he said, you can't have it if you want top-down kind of power. That measly pissant where the most you can do is hold a gun to somebody's head. A spiritual gun, of course. He says, if that's what you want to do, you'll perpetually have congregations that are nothing more than, uh, what do you call it? 
codependence. And if you'll excuse me, that's why Jesus said, it's good for you that I'm going. He did not want a codependent relationship between his people and God himself. No husband does, no she said. That's true, except for the warp and weirdness. Um, the, the, the point of, of the church of Jesus Christ is it's a group of people who the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, has transformed their lives just as Wycliffe said it would. And they could be a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. So, that's about it. Show the man some love. Joseph Foreman. Yeah! That's what I'm talking about. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Neutrality on the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network. Don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to download your favorite audiobooks and podcasts. And if you are a Christian Reconstructionist blogger and you'd like to contribute your blogs into this audio blog format, click on the volunteer link on our website, send us an email, and let us know you'd like to join the team. May Christ be glorified and His kingdom extended from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.